Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network, a station dedicated to the concept that all manifestations of the divine are equally valid. Join Reverend Terry Power HP, Robin McKean, and all the hosts for programming covering a wide range of spiritual topics right here on Blog Talk Radio. tradition. Uh, so I will pass the scepter on to Brandy uh, and let her begin and we'll take it from there. Okay. Um, so I was um, actually talking to a friend of mine, Denny Sargent, um, who's also a writer, and he was um, he was saying that a lot of the people that he knows who are magicians do theurgy, but they don't know that they do theurgy. And I said, you know, one of the things that I do as a theurgist who teaches is I do a lot of explaining about what that means. And I talk about history. I've written books about history. But um, I'd like a way to more elegantly um, connect up theurgy with what people are doing today. So I thought that would be a really interesting topic. How do we, how do we explain to people who are magicians now that what they're doing is something that we've all been doing for a long time, and it has a, a, a foundation in history, and that, that can be informative to what they do. So that's, that's, my, um, that's my current meditation. 
Uh, it is an awesome meditation and awesome suggestion. Tony, would you care to add to that? Because you, you also expressed that you'd like to talk about this as well. Yeah, I, I think yeah, it's, I it's actually a wonderful idea because I, I feel that so many people um, believe that what we're doing is, is rooted in the past and it only has um, historical significance. But the thing is, as, as Brandy pointed out, a lot of people are, practice, are practicing Fiji and they don't realize that they're actually engaging in it. So um, I actually really like Brandy's idea and um, I want to explore it during the course of the show. That, that would be phenomenal. Uh, so let's start with what, uh, what is Fiji? Uh, let's start with the working definition of Fiji, uh, Brandy. Usually I say something about it's working with the gods or or connecting with the gods. Um, And I I think that that may be a good place to start because that's where a lot of pagan people are. And, and in um, all the, all the magicians that I talked to, all the pagans that I talked to, and also in the, the tantric work, we're all relating in some way to, to the divine and there are techniques to do that. And I think those techniques are what we describe as theurgy. Very good. Tony. Um, I'm actually inclined to believe, I'm actually inclined to um, agree with that because a lot of the techniques that we use in theurgy have modern correspondences. So, for instance, the idea of ascending up through the planetary spheres and achieving hanosis, which means union with the divine, is something which is paralleled by ascending up the Kabbalistic tree of life. Yes. Um, also, the idea of invoking various god energies. Um, specifically God energies corresponding to the planetary spheres is also something that we have in, in modern ceremonial magic. Um, so there are all these parallels. So what we're doing isn't really all that different to what contemporary ceremonial mag- magicians are practicing in this day and age. It's just that we're going about it slightly differently. That is very true. And I'm finding, um, that uh, a lot of people communicate we communicate with me now that I have the podcast and I do the workshops and and uh, there is um, uh, kind of like a desire uh, to unify and to simplify uh, and to find like something universal that is something that everybody's already doing but we're like the Tower of Babel story we're calling it by different names and it's the nomenclature <laughs> that's confusing us rather than. Uh, you know, what it is that we're doing and the understandings that uh, uh, we're reaching. If we have time today, I'll get into that a bit more. But Tony and I have been talking about this uh, uh, through personal messages and things like that. So um, how would we go about uh, demonstrating to people that theurgy is something that they're already familiar with and that they're already doing? What's the best way to go about uh, um, spreading this awareness and it's something that's right at the front of my head right now because I'm I'm going to do um, Sacred Harvest Festival this year. I'm headlining it, and it's um it's in August, first week of August. And Tony's actually gone out there too, and they specifically right. asked me out because they wanted someone. Yeah, they wanted someone to talk about or, uh, another person to come in and talk about theurgy, which is which is fantastic. Um, so I thought maybe Tony could give me some pointers about <laughs> talking to that community too. Um, but so so for for magicians. 
um, golden non magicians and um, and uh, thelemites, OTO magicians, um, talk about theurgy, and theurgy is something that's sort of in our our vocabulary. And so we kind of have an understanding that's uh, uh, maybe we don't know exactly what that means, but you can start explaining it to them. But for for pagans who are not necessarily grounded in ceremonial, it seems a little bit more foreign. But but to me, it feels like the the pagan community is actually closer to to theurgy as I understand it to have been practiced um, by the Neoplatonists in that they're they're more grounded in the um, in the Hellenismos part, more grounded in relating to the deities directly, and then taking that relationship and moving it up to you know stepping it up to a more um, um, intimate and more deep understanding of, of connection with the deity. So I, I'm kind of trying to figure out, it's really more like the pagans I'm, I'm interested in. How do, I, how do I translate this out? This is what we're doing. That sounds like a, um, an awesome approach, Tony. Um, as I mentioned before, for me, one of the central aspects of theurgy is the idea of ascension. And, um, and if we go through the Chaldean oracles, for instance, which were considered to be sacred by Amblehus, we have references to initiations, purifications, and consecrations, and there are also, there also, there are also indications that the Chaldean oracles contained a ritual of ascent for the soul to return to its heavenly home and to acquire immortality, and it's a process that involves a, a breathing technique of inhaling the sun's rays with the help of angels that the soul would separate from the body. And just going off on a little bit of a tangent here, Brandy gave an excellent talk a few years ago at the Urgicon where she related her experiences from a, uh, I believe it was a Japanese temple, where the practitioners there would, would um, uh, practice solar breathing. So it, it sounds like pretty well the same process as the theurgists use. Um, so the idea of ascension processes figure very heavily in the ancient world. As I mentioned before, um, the idea of ascension um, occurs as people work with the tree of life. Um, within the Greek magical pyro, we have the Mithras liturgy, which is the most comprehensive ascension rite that we have. And there are a number of texts which compare um, various rites of ascension to that in the Mithras liturgy because it is so comprehensive. Um, you also get them in, in, in Jewish writings, um, in, in Hermeticism, the, um, in particular the Plamandres, which features an ascent. There's also the, um, uh, the Bruce Codex, which is a Gnostic rite of ascension. So ascension is something which occurs very, very prominently in, in, in the ancient world. Um, uh, it occurs in Mithraism, it occurs in Hermeticism, it occurs in Gnosticism, it occurs in the, in the, um, in the Greek magical pyrite. It's very, very... Um, very prevalent and we still have that in this day and age when people work their way up the tree of life um, so people in the golden dawn undergo various initiations in order to work their way up the tree of life and um, in other modalities also um, practice rites of ascension oh yes uh, theosophists as well the uh, the theosophical society opened up the door to uh, uh, ascension it's become part of the i am movement and the new age movement so um, a, a lot of people know what ascension is uh, now and that's an awesome thing exactly, exactly. you know and you know, 
Oh, who was it? Uh, it? It's it's very interesting to me too that there's another another whole way of looking at the ascension that it isn't necessarily a linear thing. It's not like we're lifting out of our bodies and going somewhere, but that the temple is us. The temple is in our our bodies, specifically the achima or the the star body, and we build the that star body up so that it can bring in the divine presence, so we can turn the inner eyes to the inner temple and see the divine presence there. So it's really not not only like going out to meet the deity, but the deity comes in to meet us, and that when that happens, then we become kind of a we become a suntema, we become a talisman for that deity, and I think that's the the most like profound change that can happen because of theurgy. I I um, I agree because the uh, enosis means, uh, as Tony pointed out, uh, one meant you know union like yoga. Uh, and that is what happens during the course uh, of ascension. You uh, you embody and express uh, the God that called you, the God you are, you know, the God you've always striven to be. Um, and uh, yeah. I ran a course a couple of times in different parts of Jersey called uh, Theosophy Ancient and Modern, where I showed how where the modern theosophical concepts, which people are familiar with, uh, how they were rooted in the Mediterranean world during the Hellenistic age. And, you know, they, they are echoed much earlier as well, but there is where they took uh, uh, shape. And uh, what we have now evolved uh, from uh, that earlier theosophy. Tony? Oh, that's interesting. Brandy, Brandy actually makes an, an excellent point. Um, you've, uh, we, we've all heard the saying that man is a microcosm of the macrocosm. So basically, everything that exists outside us exists within us as well. So as she, as she so correctly pointed out, there are two ways of looking at the ascension process. You can see it as a way of ascending through the planetary spheres and then going into the Ogdode and then going into the Ennead beyond that and then uniting with the divine. But the other way of looking at it is a process of going within. So we go into deeper and deeper levels of ourselves. So um, another way of picturing that process is to see ourselves as an onion and gradually peel off the, 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 um, the, the layers of onion skin until we get to the, the very core that we have within us. And, and that is the divine spark. It's that little piece of the divine. So it's, it's that spark which winds up being united with the divine in the end. So yeah, there are, there are definitely two ways of, of looking at the ascension process, um, an, an outward journey and also an inward journey. Oh, very true. In the uh, Hecalot literature, I'm probably not pronouncing that correctly, but it's the throne literature, the chariot uh, literature in uh, Judaism kind of uh, predated the Kabbalah. Um, ascension is actually called descent because you're going deeper and deeper into levels of uh, yourself. So even though they're describing the same uh, heavens and their correspondences with the planetary spirits and so on, uh, they're describing it as a descent rather than as an ascent, even though you're going to the heavens. That's awesome. That's awesome. You know, we should go back and listen to this podcast and make a list of all the things we've just mentioned. <laughs> that would be a really excellent um, article or, or essay or even anthology to, to put together all of these different ideas about how um, the ascent, descent, you know, um, connection with deity happens. Because it seems like we're describing something right. that is a, a spiritual experience that many, many cultures have described. 
Oh, well, certainly. Yeah, so just, let's do it. We, we, let me see if I can get some transcription software. We'll transcribe it and then play with it, and we'll the three of us will produce an article. That'd be awesome. <laughs> I love it. Go for it. Let's do it. <laughs> now, yeah, just, um, just, just, just ahead, following on with what, with what Hercules was saying, um, one of the big differences between the, um, the, the chariot riders and, and the um, ascents that we have in Hebrew literature and pagan literature is that um, in pagan literature we tend to think in terms of ascending through the planetary spheres, whereas in Jewish literature we talk about ascending through various so um, there are numerous references to that in the Bible. Um, one of my favorite texts is the book of, of Secrets of Enoch. And that actually yes. describes heaven as consisting of, um, of, of two levels. The first few levels consist of storehouses of wind and rain and the like. And remember that bit where, where Paul talks about knowing a man who was caught, caught to the seventh of heaven? The way a lot of Christians explain it, they say, well, seven is the number of God, and therefore it has to be the most exalted level of heaven. It's actually a reference to the secrets of Enoch, um, where they talk about the seventh level of heaven as being yes. the home of righteous. The eighth and ninth levels correspond to the levels where the seraphim and the cherubim live, and the tenth level is where God lives. So there's this definite um, structure to heaven in, in, in the book of the secrets of Enoch. So you've got all this late Jewish apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, which, which is absolutely fascinating. It dovetails very neatly with, with the stuff that we're getting into. Oh, most certainly so. Uh, and, and the angelologies uh, uh, that were kind of like universal in the Mediterranean uh, during the Hellenistic uh, era um, have been adopted by the theosophists now, or the neo-theosophists, you know, where they have, uh, you know, they've kind of like swallowed in the whole uh, angelology and demonology um, without the demons, which is how it originally was uh, as well in the Mediterranean. The Vamanists were the intermediary spirits, you know, uh, bad, good, and neutral in terms of the relations uh, to humanity. And the bad ones were the Kakozemonists, the bad demons. And the, uh, uh, the good ones were the Arafozemonists, <laughs> which means like the, the innocent, the blameless uh, um, intermediary spirits. An angel was a job description. If you're a messenger, like Hermes was an angel, um, Angelia was an angel, Iris was an angel, and Akati was described uh, as an angel as well. Mm. That's fascinating. Now, Tony mm. and I had a conversation recently, um, and I, I guess uh, we'll, I'll, I'll preface it, and then uh, it, because it, it 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 addresses the question like how do we like spread this information? Um, I've explored many different ways of looking at the universe and uh, several different cultures in, in depth. Uh, but uh, I was acculturated into this world with the, the Greco-Roman, the Olympian, and uh, after my journeys are done, I came full circle, and that's where I actually felt uh, um, I belonged. But I learned from my journey uh, exploring the Norse and the Celtic and the Arthurian and uh, Hinduism, and you know, uh, we've all been down th that uh, road. Um, and uh, um, a magician friend of mine, uh, Satori, he's in... Uh, uh, Illinois. He's popped in and out of my life at various uh, points. 
um, I used to run something called uh, Chiron's Cave or the Cave of the Centaur. And that taught Olympian heroic path. And then I used to teach something else called the Island of the Enchantress or sometimes Circe's Island, uh, which in its short version would uh, explain like uh, totemism and totemic spirits and the animal lodges and the uh, demi-humans and so forth. Um, but also would serve as like an introduction to the different ways that uh, um, ancient Greeks uh, um, interacted with uh, um, other worlds or tried to manipulate the, the forces in this world, you know, to bring about their will and, and so forth. So uh, that's been going on for like decades. Um, so he posed the challenge to me recently because he knows that um, I'm interested in uh, um, like I've been doing a lot of interfaith things and trying to communicate cross-culturally with others um, is why not take the understandings that we're teaching through the culture and see if we can get together a book list from like target or someplace to see if we could teach the same, you know, uh, material uh, lead people to the same places and give birth to the same understandings, but not with uh, the magical texts. So um, we've been working on that, and uh, we're using the artist's way as, like, the main text. And uh, my theurgy group in um, Branchville, I pitched it to them, and I showed them the books we were playing with. So they want to play with it, too, um, because even though they're primarily invested in the Greco-Egyptian with a little bit of Celtic thrown in, they're, they're open to other ways of uh, doing things. So we're, we're experimenting uh, with it. Um, and all the books uh, can be purchased at Target. So that it, it'd be something that um, wouldn't, wouldn't involve like looking for obscure text, although the Internet makes it a lot easier than back in the day. Um, so, um, you know, I don't know how this experiment will turn out. I tried something similar to this at one point uh, because uh, I do vocational um, type of stuff, workforce development. So I took one of the central questions like, you know, who are you? you know, and what do you want? And uh, that usually I would use the mythological systems, you know, to, to get to those points uh, and design a vocational program. And that was pretty effective. That ran for years and I played within tweaked and had shortened versions and longer versions. And I've done it here in this part of Jersey as well. So um, it's, it's a way of reaching people who aren't mythically inclined. And I don't know if it'll succeed or fail, but we're playing with it and, uh, uh, we're striving to see what we can do for it. So uh, Tony found the idea intriguing, but we didn't really have a chance to discuss it in depth. So I'll just throw it on the ground and uh, uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, I'm going on memory here. This is going back many, many years ago. The first new age book I ever read was um, creative visualization by Shakti Gawain. Yes. Yes. And yes. One of the things that amazed me about that book, and I didn't realize this at the time when I was first reading it, was that she took various spiritual exercises, like things that came from the Golden Dawn tradition, like the Middle Pillar exercise, Lesser Banishing Ritual, and used, pulled out the core of them and, um, and used them as, as a spiritual exercise. So she basically removed um you know the names of the angels the god names and everything else and just had the exercises there which made the whole thing very accessible so that you could practice this sort of stuff um without 
without feeling you have to embrace any any particular sort of tradition because I can imagine um, if someone doesn't want to work within a Hebraic tradition they may well be um, challenged by some of the Golden Dawn exercises because that, that's that's how they all start so um, I think something like that could be an excellent starting point just to get people working with um with with those particular principles and then if they find themselves resonating with those principles then they can go back and find out what the original exercises actually were and to come up with a real world analog to that this this is really going off on a tangent here um i studied applied maths in um in uni and what they would often do is that they would look at things that were happening in physics and they would strip away any sort of meaning but just look at the underlying mathematical principles and that's what they would teach us and that's the way that the, that the whole system grew so you seem to be doing exactly the same sort of thing that mathematicians do but you're applying it to spiritual development so the, the whole thing absolutely fascinates me and I, I can see it working because after all Shakti Gawain's book was absolutely huge it appealed to a much larger audience than it would have had she just come up with a um, with a literature survey of various spiritual techniques by taking away any sort of meaning but just giving people the exercises as they were it made them far more accessible thank you I forgot about Shakti Gwen but you're right she did do that and uh, it was very successful and it did make uh, all of those exercises very accessible to people, and uh, it it brought that whole concept of creative visualization into our culture. So, yes, and that exactly. was very powerful. Uh, Brandy, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, that was a very interesting call out, and I was thinking that um, I've heard uh, I've heard Bill talk about it. Um, um, at Llewellyn, the the um, current publisher of Llewellyn, that that's one of the books that created an entire category of, of conversation and discussion. So that's kind of what I'm thinking about. I mean, it was a great translation. Um, and and uh, another another thing I thought about as you were talking about that was the the witch's Kabbalah, which was renamed the Goddess in the Tree, and just renaming that made the idea accessible to people. That um, that um, she, she was going to talk. I've forgotten the writer now, but she's going to talk about. Um, what the Kabbalah was to pagans and make it more accessible to them. So I think, uh, I think it's a really fruitful place to go. Um, and, and that's exactly what I mean. You know, how do we take theurgy sounds so highfalutin, you know, <laughs> and, and uh-huh. I, you know, I start talking about philosophy and neoplatonists and people, uh, people's eyes glaze over, but really the techniques that we're talking about are, are, as we, as we um, did a survey, they're very common. And so we, we should be able to, to generate a language to talk about those techniques that, that make them more accessible and not, uh, don't, make us, you know, don't, don't make me sound like so much of an egghead, basically. And, uh, and also uh, because the, um, a lot of the Greco-Roman material, the, the Egyptian material, uh, has been written down and has been preserved uh, there's an actual pedigree there, a lot of the, uh, uh, and an actual history that can be verified and the material can be verified. Uh, a lot of the complaints that non-pagans or non-Greeks uh, um, uh, or Olympians uh, uh, bring up is that uh, a lot of the stuff in the Llewellyn books, for instance, uh, they feel is made up, you know, and it doesn't have a lot of uh, validity. That isn't the case, but that's the belief that uh, I hear very often. Um, Ellen Cannon-Reed was the name you're looking for, Brandy. 
Thank you for being my memory today. <laughs> Thank you. So um, by pointing to an actual history uh, and actual uh, literature that is indeed uh, ancient, it kind of, uh, even if it's evolved and it's made uh, universal and accessible, uh, the fact that it is indeed ancient, not just the, the claim of antiquity. I, I think uh, for people who are more scholarly, that would be very, uh, a, you know, something of attraction. That is a really good point. And it's something I really tried in, in For the Love of the Gods, I really tried to document that, that we're not, um, we're not reinventing something. This is not an invented system. It's an ancient system, and we've held on to it. I mean, it has, it is extant. It's something that... Um, Ceremonial magicians do the same things today that people were doing 2,000 years ago, and um, and we're not making it up. So I, I really love that. Thank you for calling that out. Um, and and you know we're the people. This this group in particular, um, the the theurgists around Hercules around your your podcast, um, we're the people who are really doing the um, on the street discussion of what theurgy is and out there talking to people along with Bruce and um, John, John Louis, right? Uh, we're really the people who are doing that. And, and so I, I think that we're the people who can kind of create this, this new vocabulary that, that brings it from the pages of history and connects up with what's, um, what is alive today to, to kind of help people understand, you know, what, what the techniques actually are and, and make them accessible. That's, that's what I'm currently working on. And I, with some urgency, since I have to teach this in a month. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm honored that you're here right now instead of working on that thing, because a month. <laughs> well, no, I've got, the, I've got the material, right? I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not inventing it. I have, um, I, I have uh, Theurgy 1 and Theurgy 2, and I'm doing a, an invocation to Hermes and Athena that will be a, um, a theurgic invocation with bringing in the ancestors and calling on the theurgic teachers um, and, and doing all of that. So I've got the, the pieces are there. I'm just really, I'm, I'm like actually at, at another level up going, all right, how do I, how do I make this sound interesting and how do I connect this up to what, with what people are doing now? That, that sounds awesome. I wish I was uh, nearer so that I could experience that, but I'm sure it'll come out in written form and uh, I'm looking forward to that. And uh, uh, Tony, uh, I have, uh, we have Hellenismos, and uh, Brandy's book is like our, our text, you know, the standard text, um, and mm -hmm. uh, the Amber Dragon has it in stock, um, and uh, so people, you know, if they're going to be part of whatever class I happen to be teaching, that's like a, a recommended reading uh, for all of them, uh, and uh, they purchased uh, Hellenismos. And uh, I recently purchased uh, Greco-Egyptian magic from uh, Amazon. So uh, um, I have it sitting in my to-read-as-soon-as-I-can pile. And once I've read that, we're going to incorporate that as, uh, as well. Uh, but as Brandy pointed out, uh, this group is the group that's uh, talking about it and spreading the information. Uh, so the books that you do write should become part of whatever you know, curriculum uh, exists. Um, for uh, theurgy as, as theurgy continues to spread. Mm -hmm. I'm re I really appreciate you um, incorporating my books. Well, initially one book and hopefully the second book as well in, in, into your curriculum. I'm, I'm glad that, that the books are, are being used and, um, and hopefully they're, um, they're affecting change in people's lives. 
<laughs> oh, they are, and the people love it. Uh, I, I remember with uh, Hellenismos, uh, uh, even before I started, uh, um, like really focusing on theurgy, um, because I'm Greek and because I would introduce Olympian concepts and whatever I was talking about anyway, uh, people were talking about the Hellenismos and that it was delayed and they didn't know why it was delayed and they wanted me to ask Llewellyn and when the book's coming out and uh, uh, somebody's husband wanted to buy it for his wife. And so it was an anticipated uh, uh, book in the community. And, uh, you know, Brandon's book, everybody who has read that uh, that has taken the class has loved that book, and uh, so it, they're awesome books, <laughs> and uh, they they deserve a much much wider audience. Thank yeah, thank you. you. So I still have about fifteen hundred of those. <laughs> um, and I, I I'm going to make them available um, in print fashion. I I've decided not to make the ebook available because I think it's one of the things that um, kind of suppress sales, and also because people tell me that they don't sell all that well. If you've got a print book, e-books um, don't actually sell all that well. So I'm going gonna, gonna to make them available. But Hercules, I was thinking, you know, you've said a number of times that you'd love to meet us. And we haven't been yeah. successful at getting you out to the West Coast. So maybe we could plan something on the East Coast. <laughs> and you could, you know, we could, we could come out and meet you. So well, that would be something, that would be an interesting thing to think about. This entire forum uh, came uh, out of your suggestion that, that we do it, and you've been recommended the people that I, I should invite. So uh, if you would like to work with okay. me uh, and Tony on putting together something on the East Coast, um, the West Coast will no longer be, um, you know, visiting the West Coast no longer be as much of an issue. Um, when the um, uh, Patheacon was uh, happening, um, we were taking care of an aunt uh, who uh, had dementia. Oh. And uh, she was homebound, oh, yeah. so we couldn't leave her alone. So every, everything was balancing, you know, our schedule so that we could take care of uh, my aunt. But my aunt has passed on. Uh, so uh, my schedule I'm sorry to hear that, and we wish her well. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, our child, Thank our youngest child welcome. who's living with us, uh, is now over 18. Uh, so he can be left uh, <laughs> alone. Uh, yeah, so free. So. So, yeah, so uh, next year my uh, wife and I are planning on uh, coming if we can. So, uh, um, but I'd Oh, fantastic. I've done a Mythic Atlantis event uh, like four or five years ago um, here in uh, Tenafly. Um, so I've been talking about uh, doing something else, and people keep asking me when I'm going to do something else, when I'm going to have more local workshops. So I can start pitching the idea of having mm. a, a forum. And I have a great relationship with the neo-theosophical groups in uh, uh, New York and, um, and a couple of the groups in California that have flown here. Uh, so if we give it enough time, we might be able to, to do that whole thing with theosophy, ancient and modern, and have representatives from both the ancient and modern to talk about these uh, ideas. Like uh, there's Unarius Academy of uh, Science. And there's so much hermeticism there. They're channeling Hermes, and they weren't even aware of uh, all the ancient material um, that tied into Hermes. Uh, they just know that Hermes is one of the um, the ascended ones, you know, who's uh, dealing with them. So those will make for a lot of interesting uh, discussions. I have them on once a month as, as well. And kind of my role is to point out how ancient what they're what they're sharing that came out of channeling in like the 50s and the 60s. Um, you know, how it related to antiquity. Well, I'm going to go back to Santiacon and say, you've got to come this year. Okay. 
this is the year that uh, Llewellyn is issuing this big book of ceremonial magic, and I've got a piece in it, so I'm definitely going to come. And I've been encouraging people to come who haven't um, haven't been or haven't been in a while. Um, and last year, Tony was able to get a theurgy forum on the schedule at PantheaCon, so I'll hope that we can we can arrange that um, and, and do something like that again. So definitely, yeah, put it on your calendar, Hercules. We'd love to meet you in person. We'll, um, we'll have an ongoing you. party. <laughs> That would yes. be fantastic. <laughs> and the gods are invited. <laughs> yeah, the gods um, are invited. <laughs> uh, oh, that would be awesome. Uh, when it, it's it's in, um, what month is it again? I will uh, start working on it after February. the show. It's President's Day weekend. Yeah. Okay. It's always President's Day weekend. February. Yeah. In- I'll go hit the website now and see. Yeah, well, we can talk more offline about how to how to do that, but definitely let's make let's make a target there. Um, Glenn Glenn Turner, who um, founded PantheaCon and is still involved with programming, she actually did, as as Tony alluded to, she did at Theurgicon um, a couple for for some years. She pulled out the whole idea of theurgy and made an, a separate con. Um, that that was um, hard to even in the Bay Area. It was hard to to go just on its own. So she's reincorporated back into PantheaCon. But there usually is some stuff about theurgy, and she's very much a, a supporter of that idea. So um, d- definitely, definitely we should we should think about doing it. Um, a few of the, my students have also expressed an interest in um, uh, coming. Uh, so uh, I will pitch this to them when I see them in the second week of the next month. Yeah, I'm looking on the website, and it's already up uh, February 14 to 17. Um, and and I'll, I'll I'll send you a little note offline about how to um, how to how to how to find places to stay. <laughs> okay, awesome. It's huge. It's the biggest festival ever. I mean, it it, it really is. You'll find everything everything there the, uh, in the pagan community, any anything at all. So, yeah, fantastic. I'll, I'll have to ask my publisher if they're uh, if they have a presence there as well. So uh, if they don't, maybe I could work something out with oh, them. Um, who's your publisher? Um, Inner Light Publications or Global Publications. Uh, they publish uh, luridly titled uh, occult books. Brad Steiger used to write for them, and uh, uh, it's Timothy Green Beckley. I don't know if you guys have heard of him, um, but. Uh, uh, since uh, as far back as I can remember, uh, they used to continuously publish occult uh, books, and they kept the old books that were um, often out of print and hard to find. Uh, they would reprint them and keep them in circulation, and they still do that. So I've been in 10 anthologies uh, so far in the past year plus, and uh, um, now they're, they're working on a book on mythology and like the UFOs and uh, a few chapters I've written for that. And they're interviewing me too, for the book. So I'll, I'll be a, pre- a big presence in this particular anthology. Um, and, uh, uh, and then uh, what do you call it? There'll be others. Whenever they ask for a, a contribution, I give it a mythical slant and share what uh, uh, Olympian information I have. And uh, um, yeah, so that's, kind of become my niche you know mythology applies to everything <laughs> well Llewellyn, Llewellyn are there every year um wiser often turn up and a few years ago Imanium Press had a presence as well so um but they're the only publishers that I'm aware of okay I, I yeah. will talk with them 
maybe they don't know about this or, you know, they, they just stay local, but mostly on the East coast. Um, but th- that would be awesome. Uh, all right. Um, what would you like, are we, are we going to, would you like to put together like something theatrical to do something ritual to do, or, or just to be suggest uh, different topics, uh, to talk about as you guys did this year and in previous years. You know, we really should do a, a theurgic ritual and, and start doing that demonstration. I've been doing the uh, more ritual work this year as I present. So I just did Babylon Rising, um, and and um, it's an outdoor camping event. The first time I went, I did um, PowerPoint presentations, and it, <laughs> that's really better for, for conferences that are in hotels. So I adapted this year, and I did entirely experiential stuff. Um, and, and people are really hungry for ritual. They really like being able to have an opportunity to connect. So I did um, I did a invocation to Seshat um, with some sort of comedic elements, and at uh, at Sacred Harvest Fest I'm going to do Hermes and, and Athena. So I definitely think we should do we should talk about doing some ritual, um, oh, and it's a great cool. idea to to have more than one person to do it. Yeah. I, I agree. Wow. Um, having an experiential component is, is always a wonderful idea. So start off by giving a short explanation of what we're going to do. Because this is something that people won't be able to get anywhere else. Um, when it comes right. down to it, um, you, you go to events, um, there's no shortage of Wiccan stuff. There's going to be a little bit of Thelemic stuff, maybe a little bit of Golden Dawn stuff. Um, but no one's really doing theology publicly. So I, I, can, I can see this working, working quite well. Yes, yeah, so can I. Got to start working on yeah. the, uh, the, the clothing and stuff. Uh, from now. Every <laughs> day we start talking about costuming. <laughs> um, yeah, so August 1st is when presenter applications open. So, you guys, that's that's uh, that's pretty close. <laughs> glad, glad we're talking about it now. Yeah. Uh, but the theme is not yet decided, so that makes it harder. Um, Tony was able to connect the, the, the theme. Um, last year they had kind of an activist kind of theme, so he talked about theurgic activism, and that made the, the panel really go. So it would be helpful if they if they had a theme. But we'll just, well, we'll just put it in. I encourage us all to, to put our, our applications in. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll bounce from I've never been to Pantheacon or any major uh, uh, spiritual convention like that. Um, usually they oh congregate uh, in the uh, uh, health conventions here in uh, like the East Coast, you know, so you get a lot of spiritual groups in like uh, uh, health conventions, uh, but I've never been one that's uh, devoted to spirituality. So I'll bounce what I'm uh, thinking about off of you guys uh, to get your expert opinion before I write it up and submit it. Okay. Yeah, we can t- spend a second talking about Pantheacon because it's very big. It is. Um, okay. It may be the biggest pagan festival. It's certainly. Um, it's certainly at least one of the biggest. It's in the DoubleTree Hotel in San Jose, and um, they fill the DoubleTree. So it's it's a tremendous, oh. um, tremendously large. Yeah. Um, they they don't just fill the DoubleTree. That's what I was saying about um, about where to stay. They fill five overflow hotels around it. There are two floors of hospitality rooms. So there's maybe 20 hospitality rooms. There are 10, uh, 10 workshops going at any given time simultaneously. And all the banquet rooms, three large banquet rooms, are all going almost all the time. And there's programming from in the morning until late at night. So the rituals tend to be at night. Um, some, some of the rituals tend to be at night um, if they think they're going to attract some attention or, or noise. 
so we can make as much noise as we want. People howl and drum and, and, and wear clothing in the hallways and that sort of thing. So the, it, it's really, um, it, it's really very big and very diverse. I mean, there are um, heathens. It's, it tends to be progressive politics. So um, heathens against racism. Um, there's, there's uh, uh, people of color, hospitality suites and, um, and women, covenant of the goddess um, and new reformed order of the golden dawn tend to club together um, Open source order of the Golden Dawn is not going to go this year, but um, usually there's an OTO suite. Um, yeah, just a huge, huge um, variety and diversity. So um, truly, if you if you throw something down, there will be people who will be interested in it. And there was a tremendous interest in theurgy last year. We we filled a, a workshop at nine in the morning. It was, I think it was. I mean, it was it was like oh, we opened <laughs> the the convention on a on a weekend day, and and people showed up and were very interested in what we had to say so i think um it is something that that is it's the right audience and and uh we will have an audience for the things that we say oh that'll be awesome do you guys record what you say i don't do this uh i should because uh it's easier to generate uh you know writing if you record what you're talking about um but uh have you guys recorded the speeches that you give we we didn't record anything i have seen some some people record their own efforts um, but just um, echoing what, what Brandy said, pretty well every path, every, every major spiritual path is represented. So no matter what you're into, you will find something there. And the biggest complaint that people have at Theurgicon is that at any time slot, there will be more than one presentation you want to go to. So you're <laughs> going to be faced with this dilemma of, do I go to workshop A or do I go to workshop B? Because they both sound absolutely fantastic. But, you know, that, that's the way it goes. So an embarrassment. Of yeah, I think I was against Bruce or something. <laughs> you know, like, no, that can't be true. Um, yeah, so that 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 is that is the case. But, yeah, and, and there is also a space for um, for ritual. There, ritual is encouraged as well as talk. So I think that your ideas are really good ideas. Oh, that, that is incredibly awesome. My wife came to refresh my uh, coffee, and I jotted uh, on a uh, uh, index card, you know, I put the dates down and everything, and she nodded her head uh, excitedly. So uh, after the show tonight, uh, we'll be talking about it and uh, start making whatever plans we can make from now. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad now, you're, you're captivated again. I'm what? I'm sorry. I missed the, the word. I'm, I'm glad you're caffeinated as well. I'm being silly. I'm being silly. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, you you had uh, um, you know basically brought up the uh, pagans uh, are um, the pagans are um, taking up causes, and I think that's a, a remarkable and wonderful thing uh, to be encouraged. Um, one of the things that I've been doing in my small way and other people in my community have been doing it is uh, because we're so polarized uh, right now, um, talking to people deliberately who you're not going to agree with at all and looking to find some common ground. So um, on one of my political shows that I have, um, I have somebody who's a conservative Republican. So uh, I'm kind of like a progressive uh, Democrat. Uh, so I lean toward the left, he leans toward the right. So in terms of our politics and uh, several very important issues, we don't agree at all. But we have a civil discourse 
and we're willing to listen to the other person's point of view without feeling obliged to agree with them at all. It's fine not to agree, but it's good to talk and it's good to understand. So uh, I went to a uh, Rotary meeting today, and uh, the uh, president of the Chamber of Commerce uh, was inviting people um, to watch the debates. And uh, she was doing this as a private citizen, not as uh, under the auspices of the Chamber of Commerce, of course. But um, she was inviting people over and encouraging people who don't agree with her politics to come over and let's all watch the debates together and then uh, talk about it as we eat, you know, (laughs) during commercials and afterwards. So um, a couple of the politicians have also voiced uh, uh, similar sentiments. And I think this is a good thing. It's starting grassroots uh, and people are openly talking about it. Uh, and they're building those, uh, you know, uh, bridges, which we really need uh, built right now beyond even the spiritual or religious uh, arenas, um, but into our daily life. Because uh, um, I hear nothing but polarization, uh, you know, as I journey uh, and accomplish my uh, tasks throughout the day. You do a lot of activism, uh, Brandy. How is it going uh, there? Are people more people talking or or trying to talk, or is it so polarized? Yeah, no, I I think uh, it's something that the Kitsap County Council for Human Rights, my little county um, organization, has been diligently working on, and we've been quite successful actually at um, at generating conversations that that help to start break down those those boundaries as you said we're we're polarized but i think uh one of the ways to think about it is that we are almost segregated i know that that's a word that we use about race and certainly it's true that we're we're racially segregated especially here in the northwest where we're so we're so white whenever i travel outside of this region like oh my gosh i am so surrounded by white people up here um but we're segregated too in terms of like just we're separated by the the news that we watch the places that we go um to uh, to socialize with people, we're tending to flock together in in, um, in in like-minded groups, and of course, online we we are, are segregated in communities that agree with us. So it's very difficult to to actually meet somebody who you recognize as a reasonable human being who has a different point of view. So anything we can do to generate spaces where those kinds of conversations can happen is really important. And what we do in the council is to try to um, do community forums and to uh, we do a conference. And we go to the county fair. So the county fair is where everybody shows up, right? So we we can be next to the the Republicans or next to the um, Our Lady of the the Sea, you know, anti-abortion people. Um, And we're there under our our banner that says acceptance without exception, right? So we are there to talk to people and just make ourselves available for that conversation. Um, and sometimes it feels like being a, a, a one of those little um, uh, one of those things where you throw balls and you dunk somebody in a dunk tank. You know, sometimes it feels like you're a sitting duck, right? Because you're sitting there and people can just come up to you and you know start talking. But we really we really enjoy that. We really like putting ourselves out and and trying to to um, to break down the barriers between people because I think that's the that's important. It's important to the the civic conversation that we recognize each other's common humanity. Um, and yeah. and I think it's important to to um, building back to the idea that we do have common values that we all affirm. We're, we're so polarized right now that we think that, you know, that, that the other people, we really demonize 
people on yeah. the other the other side of the political spectrum, and and it's a little bit scary how how we do that, and that that um, leads to escalating violence, and we see it, we see that happening. So I I think it's it's the most critical work that we can possibly do, and I, I think you're absolutely right, Hercules, to to focus on that. It is awesome what you're doing, and I love the the, the slogan as well. Um, in fact, if you're up to doing like a show or three on that uh, sometime down the line, I, I would love that. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I really love it. Sometimes I had a, I had a young woman. Um, uh, I love the kids, right? So the kids come by, and she was like 12. So she looked up at the sign, and she said, okay, acceptance without exception. I'm on. What do I do? And I said, keep talking to people. <laughs> you know, yes, yes. It was so exciting, you know, to, to reach people and to reach people who are young um, and to, to just represent that, that point of view. And that really means acceptance without exception. So our, in the, uh, after the last election, our, our board was joined by people really a very, very diverse political view. So we had some really, uh, like me, very progressive people who were motivated to act in some way. And then we also had some people from the other side of the spectrum who were really conservative and were also afraid to voice their opinions. We had one woman who said, I believe in life in all ages. And we said, thank you for coming. We'd love to hear your point of view. And we you know, continue to try to integrate her um, into the, the work of the, the council. The council itself is nonpartisan, and, uh, and we, really try to, we really try to represent that. Um, and once you once once somebody is sitting in a chair next to you and you're having a conversation with them um, with an open mind, then then the barriers do start to break down and you start to see that person as as human, um, which is is really really important. Yes. Uh, Tony and I have started a dialogue, uh, you know, on uh, theurgic activism, and uh, uh, Tony was very bold uh, to uh, step forth and uh, do this with him. But we're starting to tackle things like abortion. Um, and uh, issues that are not as uh, um, what do you call Bill Trust established rapport, but actually like face the tough questions that uh, um, you know people are not talking to answer, but instead bashing each other for perceived points of view. Um, yeah, that's actually a huge issue. And um, listening to Brandy, um, I kept thinking how important it would be to be able to to look for commonality um, between people on, on opposite sides of the political political spectrum. It, it can be so difficult to accomplish. Just to come up with, with a couple of real-world examples of the difficulties involved, the gym that I train at had to shut down the news programs that they were showing. They were showing Fox News and also CNN. What was happening was that was that gym members were starting to get into fights with each other. So they had to shut down those TVs. I keep hearing stories about families being divided Gosh. because their, their politics vary. Um, yes. So to find common ground is, is something that we really need to be doing. Um, a couple of months ago, Bernie Sanders um, was on Fox News, and he um, was asked to attend a debate in a town hall. And he actually managed to win the audience over once he started talking about universal health care. Um, people started really? to realize people started to realize how important it was to have health care. The the system that we have in this country is absolutely broke. No one should should go broke um, trying no. to remain healthy. Right. And um and if um, unless you're incredibly wealthy 
um, you know that there's always this specter of losing everything that you have if you if you get yeah. if you get sufficiently thick. So that was one way that that Bernie used in order to to bridge the gap between between himself and the people that he was talking to. So even though socialism is a dirty word um, for so many people in this country, once they actually think about what it means, they realize that it will be of, of benefit to them. It's a matter of of scraping a little bit off the top, and there's so much money at the top, and giving it to the people down the bottom. So the people at the top are still obscenely wealthy, just a little less wealthy, but they still have more money than they'll ever be able to spend. But some some of the surplus money gets to go to the people at the bottom. We should not have people living on the streets like we have in Skid Row. We should not have homeless veterans. There's so much inequality in this country, so many issues that need to be addressed. Um, homelessness is another issue, which... which um, I think may be capable of bringing people together. I mean, you can't look at what's happening in Skid Row and think, well, you know, we, we can turn our back on this issue. It's, it, it's something that has to be addressed. How we address it is, is a matter of debate. Oh, true. And well, you know, uh, it's it's something that. Uh, um, I, I, let me. Uh, I'll I'll see the floor in just a second, but. It, it's something that is um, very much front and center here in the Northwest, where we do have a lot of homeless people. I, I mean, a lot of homeless people, and, and there are people sleeping on the streets, so it's very visible. And everyone, um, everyone is like making that our, our sort of thing to focus on this year. When we when we go out in the community as the Human Rights Council and talk to people, what what's your concern? There are many many concerns, but you know, two two years ago it was healthcare. This year it's just you know people don't have a place to live, and that's something we absolutely have to we have to solve that problem. Um, because it's it's a public health problem in addition to a humanitarian crisis, right? So I think you're totally right right there, Tony. That that's something that we definitely need to focus on. Yeah. And uh, there's draconian legislation uh, being uh, purported and being passed uh, that if you try to help somebody who is uh, um, homeless, you know, if you try to feed them or give them money, you know, so that they can go buy their own food, whatever you know way you want to uh, do that. Uh, in, in th- there's legislation being brought up to make that illegal. Like uh, New York recently wanted also to make it illegal to feed the squirrels, <laughs> which uh, I grew up feeding squirrels. It was part of my childhood. It was part of my children's childhood. Uh, and now not to be able to feed uh, squirrels, it, 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 it's really difficult to understand uh, sometimes. And healthcare is very important. That's one of the that's one of the issues that I've been focusing on uh, as well. And uh, you know, I'll work with anybody regardless of their ideological uh, um, orientation uh, if they think that this is something worth addressing. And uh, because it, you're right, something needs to be done about this, and uh, it, it can't continue the way it, it's currently running. Um, I come from a country with with universal healthcare. And all the positives and all the negatives that you've heard about it are true. So the thing is that um, every resident is entitled to free health care. But the way that it works is that you're screened by a triage nurse. And so the nurse looks at you if you have a life-threatening condition, so you're having a heart attack or a stroke or something like that, you go in straight away and they will treat you for free. However, 
if it's not a life-threatening condition, then they will put you on a waiting list and you may have to wait several weeks or even several months to be treated. But what's not talked about is that we also have a private hospital system. So if you're told that you have a condition that won't be treated for six months, you can get it treated straight away by going to a private hospital. But those private hospitals are very affordable, much more affordable than here. Um, and everyone who is a resident or a citizen of Australia is entitled to free to free healthcare, and that's the, that's the way it should be. You should not have people missing out on healthcare, and you shouldn't have people worried about losing everything they have just to get healthy. Um, I shouldn't really be talking about my mother, but she has she had a heart attack, which. And she also had a stroke. One condition led to her spending a week in hospital. Um, the other condition led to her spending two weeks in hospital. Each time round, the bill came to zero. Absolutely awesome. zero. It, cost, it, 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 didn't, it didn't cost her a cent. And back in um, 2011, she was on six different medications. A month's supply of each of those medications was just over $5. So for $30... She had all the medicines she needed to keep her healthy. So there were, there were medications there to lower her cholesterol, to keep her blood thin, and, and four others. Okay, so $30 for a month's supply of medications um, back in 2011 was very, very reasonable. Whereas here, for the same medications, you're looking at huge amounts of money. You know, you, you go into emergency, and typically you're looking at five grand to be treated. Yes. The, the average person can't afford that. So people go, go without treatment. It's, there was one case, I think it was in Texas, of a young guy who had um, a really bad toothache. And what he needed was a painkiller and antibiotics. He couldn't afford both. So he chose the painkiller. The infection wound up killing him. This country has the best health care in the world, and yet he died of something that people should only mm-hmm. die of in third world don't have any health care. Anyway, it, it's an issue I feel strongly about. Good. Uh, yes. We need lots of people feeling strongly about it so that we can verbalize how we feel and uh, uh, get some action going, because uh, you're right. This is a country that has excellent uh, health care, uh, and this dilemma that we're currently facing, I remember I used to work in uh, um, hospitals, you know, and in the early days of my working in hospitals, uh, they had somebody that you went to. So regardless of what your uh, circumstances were, they found a way to pay for your treatment. So people didn't get saddled with uh, uh, these uh, crippling expenses. Uh, a lot of this started when the insurance companies uh, became a force uh, in the, the equation. And uh, also when yes. I started working, I, I remember I could afford health care. You would go there and they put you on a sliding scale. You had to bring in your taxes and your last few paychecks, and they'd sit down with you and give you an affordable price and, and a schedule to pay it. And there you go. <laughs> Nothing complicated, but accessible and affordable. Mm-hmm. 
And whenever I hear you two talking about this, too, I think about, um, you know, people may think we've strayed a little bit far from theurgy, but the, no. the theurgists, the ancient teachers, were all very much about taking care of people and even, you know, opening their homes and making sure that people got taken care of. So it's very much front and center in, in, the, theurgic, um, in the theurgic world. That is an excellent point uh, because it was and it, it, it still is among the magical folks that I speak to, especially uh, theurgists, you know, that, uh, you know, we have a responsibility to our world. And uh, that is something regardless of where the person is coming from, if I see it in them, it, it's a great uh, thing. It all comes down to interconnectedness. None of, none of us are an island. We're connected to everyone else. So... Something that hurts one person hurts everyone. Very true. Um, how about we take a short break at this point? We're we're at the midpoint, um, and uh, we can be in five minutes. Sounds great. Sounds great. Okay, let me find a song here, and. Uh, Cry Freedom, that sounds good.
of the old expanding universe. Trust that brain behind your eyes to carve a space for us within the universal mind. And if it's up to us to bring some balance back, let it not be said it's courage that we of Olympus. Tonight is the night of our theurgy forum, and we're here with Brandy Williams and Tony Merswicki. Greetings and welcome back, O panelists. Greetings. Hi, Hercules. Hi. Uh, wow, I'm so excited uh, <laughs> about uh, February. So, uh, um, wow. <laughs> um, awesome. That's really great. Now, how can we um, – it sounds like everybody here is open to embracing um, other people who are different and establishing communication and then uh, focusing on uh, uh, social uh, issues. And uh, um, I was thinking uh, during the break um, – if it would be productive that collectively, like individually, we all have our, you know, the things that we're addressing. Uh, if uh, collectively as theurgists, uh, we might uh, pick a social issue and then brainstorm and, you know, with whatever means are at our disposal, try to uh, address that as in as grand a fashion as we can. Okay. Okay. Does that sound like something we uh, can conceivably do? Sure. We can try. Okay. Uh, uh, Health care. How, how about that issue? That That's something uh, that uh, Tony had brought up. Um, and, uh, you know, basically equality, uh, which is something that uh, Brandy uh, brought up, and uh, communication. Um, does it... Do, Everybody feels are those like good places to start brainstorming. We start brainstorming now. No time like the present. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And one of the things we we've talked about on the Human Rights Council is that we have a mandate to look at the ways that people have different access. 
So um, there are there are ways in which people are discriminated against because of race or gender or sexual orientation. And so when we look at an issue, we look at it through that lens. You know, in in terms of healthcare, people who can afford insurance or who can afford private healthcare have access, and people who are not able to don't. And also, um, people. Uh, trans people in this country, for example, it's very difficult for trans people to get any kind of medical services um, because we're just not geared geared for that. Um, that's been cut um, as, as part yeah. of cost cutting procedures in our in our our local um, community. So that's one way to look at it. You know, the uh, how do we how do we increase access uh, in not just to make it more more affordable, but specifically to increase access for people who don't currently have access. Um, and it, it's, I think it's a public issue. It's uh, right now our, our response is that um, we should we should be privately donating, um, and and we've actually got a system now where people, a lot of people I know are trying to fund their own healthcare through GoFundMe pages, and I regularly contribute to people's GoFundMe pages. But I really think that this is something that ought to be like on a higher level than on the individual level. Yes. That's that's my personal thought. Oh, very 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 true, um, uh, Tony. Um, realistically, the only way you can fund universal health care is through tax, um, especially taxing the rich. And that's why you wind up with so much resistance, because um, um, you're forcing people to pay for the health care of others. And there are some people who don't want to do that. Some wealthy people think that they should only be paying for their own health coverage, and that's it. But yeah, it, it's one of the costs of, of, of living in a society where people have an obligation to, to, look after, to look after other people within that society because what we have at the moment, you know, haves and have-nots, um, just is, isn't acceptable. I think everyone should be entitled to have a base standard of living, which means that they should have a roof over their head and they should have access to health care, you know, buy a roof over their head. I'm not talking about a waterfront mansion, just something something very basic so that they're um they're out of the cold, out of the heat, um, not exposed to the elements and a basic level level of health care so that they if they have any aches and pains they can go off and see a doctor. You know, I'm not talking about giving them access to plastic surgery or something like that. Just basic health care to keep them healthy. I'm certainly in agreement uh, with that. So equality and uh, health care. Now, currently, um, like I've I've learned that, um, you know, contacting your legislators is a very productive thing to do um, because they, for every number of calls they get, it translates into how many people may actually feel this way. Uh, so if you express, uh, um, you know, what your beliefs are, and if enough people express what their beliefs are, it will sway legislators um, it, because you're voters. And uh, I have uh, many friends who now send me emails full of uh, sign this uh, petition or sign you know, uh, that. I don't know how effective that is. I've talked to uh, um, several politicians who said that's very effective. Uh, and I've spoken to others who said that they ignore it totally. So I, I, you know, I, 
I'm not as involved with that at this particular um, point. Um, Brandy, do you have like a, a service when you let people know when legislation is coming up that impacts people in terms of uh, equality? Oh, sure. I mean, uh, um, in the uh, not not in the um, Human Rights Council, but I, I um, did some activist work with Move On last year, and you might remember that the um, the Health Care Act um, was under fire, and there was a tremendous um, outpouring of support for the Health Care Act across the country, and people were um, were filling up their legislators' offices. Um, if you watched Rachel Maddow at that time, she would she would show films. Um, so we were trained. I was actually trained as a move-on activist on how to do that, um, and I, I went to my one of the the forums that my local congressman held and uh, went and asked him a question and then filmed his response. Now my 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 congressman is a progressive democrat so it wasn't it was an instant sale, right? Um but it was also interesting because we all, one of the things we did was to go door to door and talk to people about healthcare. Now that's activism because that's scary yes. to do. We went and we, we were trained on how to do it and we went in in pairs. And I actually talked to someone and said, you know, who was uh you know, I don't want to I don't want to pay for someone else's healthcare and I said, yeah, but you know the thing is, I'm about to retire, and I've worked my whole life in the system, but I'm not sure I'm going to be able to afford insurance, and I really think I ought to be able to have access to health insurance. And he said, "Wait a minute, that makes sense to me." So again, it's one of those things where if you get yourself in a position where you can talk to somebody um, and talk to them like as a reasonable person, you can start to break down, um, break through the the sort of images that media throws up, and start connecting on a real human level. Then people start listening. Um, so I, I think it's it's absolutely um, it's absolutely a, a, an important issue. I I don't see it this year. I mean, um, uh, last year it was a really really big issue, and it seemed like it kind of died down. We kind of kept the the Health Care Act, right? So this year we've moved on more to in the local community to homelessness. Um, do you, Hercules? Do you see that as being a a real? I mean, it's the the need is still there. But um, but the the healthcare act does seem to at least have have started something. It's not as as, as huge an issue as, as other things right now. So uh, do you still see it as a really you know as our like front burner issue? Uh, the healthcare um, I still see it as being very important because even though we kept the the, the healthcare act, there are a lot of people uh, who cannot afford to get uh, care or who think twice about getting care, um, and. Uh, um, I've been encouraging people, in addition to traditional care, uh, to you know, explore al- alternative type of uh, care. And uh, there's a group here on the uh, um, East Coast and then uh, people I know on the West Coast who are trying to um, make alternative health care more professional so that uh, it doesn't suffer uh, some of the stigma that's associated with alternative uh, health care as another solution. Uh, I'm not a doctor. I've worked in hospitals, but I'm not a doctor. I'm not medically trained. Uh, so, uh, um, you know, basically I, I have no way of judging the effectiveness of uh, things other than if I've tried them myself. Like I'm a firm believer in meditation. Uh, and I know that uh, since uh, I started meditating and I meditate like three times a day, uh, I've been phenomenally calm. <laughs> and so all those stress-related things that used to uh, – um, you know, afflict me at one point in my life are, are not there anymore uh, because I've learned to relax and withdraw to uh, a different set of brainwave patterns. So um, 
there are like effective treatments for post-traumatic uh, stress disorder too uh, that are proving very effective and articles are being written. And uh, um, I'm learning about that because I've been approached uh, to like be on a board uh, for that. Um, homelessness. Uh, I remember when I lived in New York, uh, I don't live in New York anymore. I live in the suburbs. Uh, but when I lived in New York, it was a very big problem. People were living in cardboard boxes, literally, uh, underneath the bridges, like trolls, you know, in the fairy tales. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, that happens here had, a lot. Yes, and it's it's scary, you know, uh, because uh, um, you're looking at them. There's rats all over the place at night. No matter how well the park looks during the day in in New York City, if you're walking in a park at night, you're going to see tons of rats, or like all over the place. Uh, and these folks have uh, no choice, you know, but to live there amongst like these hordes of uh, rats. And they're um, vulnerable to uh, human predators, um, you know, who will take their stuff and, uh, you know, or beat them up for no reason or do something more extreme like uh, set them on fire. So, yeah, it, it's a very big problem. Um, and uh, uh, I, I believe that some of the solutions like waking somebody up and sleeping on a bench, you know, and forcing them to move on are inhuman as well. If there was another alternative for them, they wouldn't be sleeping on a bench. I'm a great believer in alternative healing modalities. And um, my approach tends to be the exact opposite of what the medical profession want us to do. The medical profession want us to see a doctor take pharmaceuticals, and then if all else fails, then go for herbs and alternate healing modalities. I, I always go for the herbs first. Um, and one thing that's really excited me over the last few years is the growing accessibility of, um, of industrial hemp and also cannabis in, in some states. Um, cannabinoids are the closest thing that we have to, to a panacea. And in California, the law is that you can have six plants and, um, and you can grow those for, for your own use. Um, but the sad thing is, is that if you have your own home, um, that's something that you could, you could contemplate doing. But if you're living on the street, you can't. And Hercules, you mentioned yeah. um, PTSD and the like. Um, mm -hmm. There's documented evidence that um, cannabinoids can actually help with PTSD, various stress conditions. Um, they will help with depression. Um, the list of things that cannabis and industrial hemp will do um, is absolutely mind-blowing. You know, so there's depression, PTSD. Um, they will strengthen bones, um, accelerate bone healing when you have fractures. Um, they have an anti-inflammatory effect. So I think a lot of conditions that people may find themselves experiencing can be handled through cannabis or hemp, then of course there's a plethora of, of other herbs. But having said that, there are certain conditions that can't be addressed through, um, through alternate healing methods. So for instance, um, if you rip a tendon, that has to be surgically reattached. Um, if you... Um, need to have some sort of some sort of heart operation then you know no no amount of energy healing or herbs is going is going to heal that it, it's something that, that does require an operation so um, I think giving people access 
to alternate healing methods is great. It's certainly a step in the right direction, but they also need to be able to to access doctors for those situations yeah. where the alternate healing modalities are ineffective. That's a yeah, great and point. and I like the both-and approach. Yeah, that we we uh, we both um, use the uh, use every every system for what it's best for. And again, you know, sort of bringing it back to theurgy, I'm reminded that um, the theurgists have always been people who were ourselves healers. We have always, in addition to, you know, advocating for people, we've always known about herbs and um, and known about uh, healing techniques. It was something that um, that Proclus was known for, was, was being able to go out and, and heal people. Um, so, you know, I, I, I do some, I'm, I'm not a, a doctor or an herbalist, but I do regularly give advice to people when they ask because I've just been using herbs. I grow them. So I, I often, if people ask me for something, I will go take them an herb that they, they want. So are, are you two like involved in, in sort of a, a personal way in, in providing services also? Uh, Tony? Um, I'm not personally involved. Um, I, there are, particular stores I go to to buy herbal tinctures and extracts Um, like for instance I've had migraines all my life and I'm one of the lucky ones who can treat them with feverfew and if you've ever had a full-blown migraine you would give anything to make it stop literally anything but knowing that I can take a bottle of feverfew tincture and a month's supply costs me $12 I mean that is an incredible bargain well, $12 yeah. for, for yeah. migraine um, for a whole month, is that, that's the greatest bargain in the world. Take that from me from someone who's had, who's had, um, who had migraines many, many years ago. And since taking Feverfew, I haven't had a full-blown migraine. I've gone as far as the photophobia stage, but it hasn't, it hasn't progressed beyond that. Um, there are a, a number of other... That, that's the one herb that I have to take pretty well on a daily basis but there are other herbs that I'll take um, if, if I'm getting sick um, you know I'll take ginger or or garlic um, or oregano oil um, elderberry syrup is is wonderful the biggest challenge I face with elderberry syrup is sticking to recommended dosages I keep wanting to take more because it uh-huh. tastes so damn good <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> but, but there are there are so many herbs out there that, that you can use, and I will always try those first. And if anyone asks me, um, that that's what I'll recommend. And then if all else fails, you know, then go off and see a doctor. The and a migraine way. is a really great um, I- example because when I when I hit menopause, I, I started getting migraines. It was my it was my my first migraine was my note that my body was changing, and I, I want to tell you the pill that my doctor prescribed me. There were a hundred dollars a pill. I am not making this up. Wow. Now, as you know, if you have a migraine, you're willing to spend the hundred dollars right on the pill. But you're totally right. I grow yeah. fever few, and fever few will take care of that. So it's a it's an amazing thing, um, and I think it's probably a good thing to to encourage people to do just in general to learn about herbs and um and to to um help you know dose your own family and to to help other people around you and it's definitely a place where we can connect to the pagan community too because there's so many people who are into um um herbs and and uh witches and pagans in, in general you know are very receptive to that idea 
Yeah, I, that that is very very true. Um, I I've never heard of fever few, but my wife and my eldest son get really bad headaches. So I'm going to recommend it to them. Is there a particular form that's best uh, to take a fever few? Um, the, the extracts or the tinctures are the best. Don't don't bother with capsules. They're just they're just not strong enough. Okay. Um, the other the other thing with fever few is it doesn't work the way normal medicine works. So you can't take it for symptomatic relief. You have to take it daily and it builds up um, to a level where it's usable in the body. In my case, probably 30 years ago, um, I was in a situation where I'd have three or four migraines um, a year. And then I started getting what my doctor called cluster headaches, which was basically a series of migraines. So he prescribed ergotamine tartrate for me, which didn't cost $100 a pill. It was much cheaper than that, but it was still fairly pricey. And what I found was that um, I would take one of these pills, dissolve it sublingually, and it would knock the migraine on, on the head within about 20 minutes. But then three or four days later, I'd have another one and another one and another one. So I, I knew I wasn't treating the root cause. I tried acupuncture, tried a whole lot of other things. And fever few came as a blessing from the gods for me. Um, it doesn't work for everyone, but I'm one of the lucky ones who it works for. And it sounds like like Brandy's another one who it works for. Well, I'm hoping that the the people I care about that get headaches, it works for them as well, because that that sounds wonderful. They're they're afflicted with occasional uh, cluster headaches and migraines, and uh, uh, relief uh, is not uh, at hand. I also Definitely don't go to doctors. Uh, I will go if something happens. Like uh, when I first got type 2 diabetes, um, I fell down stairs twice. So that, that yeah, I listened to my wife when she suggested I go see a physician. Uh, but normally I try to take care of things on my own. I experiment with different herbs, uh, with different uh, vitamins, uh, with different uh, um, yogic practices, with different exercises. And, uh, you know, that seems to keep me in good health most of the time. Uh, because uh, I'll, I'll always experiment. I'll take things. I'll stop taking them to see if there's a difference. Um, and uh, like you said that the fever view takes a while to build up. Uh, some of the yeah. things I tried and discounted, uh, folks I've spoken to uh, have said that I didn't give them enough of a chance to build up in my system and that I should extend my, my testing period, you know, by another month or two uh, before making a decision. So I've, I've started doing that as well. Absolutely. Um, and the other thing that you need to um, be cognizant of is diet. Sometimes diet will take care of things. Remember what Hippocrates said, um, let food be thy medicine, let medicine be thy food. A lot of yeah. conditions can actually be addressed through a decent diet. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with your diet. I'm just floating that as a possibility. Yeah, diet is another so, thing I play with all the time. Uh, and as a type yeah. 2 diabetic... Uh, a diet will work for a while great until the day it doesn't. And then it's back to the drawing board again where, you know, every, like every food, eating it and not eating it and seeing what the results are and until I come up with something else that works and it'll work wonderfully until the day that it stops uh, working and then it's back to the drawing board. Wow. Is there a uh, resource for uh, pagans and magical folks that uh, um, 
will introduce them to what type of uh, uh, herbs might be good to try? Paul Barrell's um, herbal is always a, a good start, I think. Um, that that was sort of, but I may be dating myself there. <laughs> Tony, what do you what do you go to as your go to herbal? Um, well, I'm going to be dating myself as well. Um, some of Scott Cunningham's books are quite good as well. There you go. Okay. Yeah. So we we'll, yeah, we'll compendium of herbing, that, herbal but, magic and. Master Book of Herbalism are Paul's books. But the other thing is that there's, and there's still, so much still information available online now. Yes. Yeah, although it's helpful to know, I mean, there there is so much information, but there's also conflicting information. I mean, Paul yeah. is a very well-respected herbalist. That's why I kind of went to him. Um, um, so... Is this something that it might be helpful to like circulate there? Like, like currently, I put up every now and then how to register to vote, how to research what your politicians are are voting on and how they're voting. And uh, I, you know, I, I post them um, for a while, a lot, and then I cut back and post them periodically uh, um, so that people don't tune them out. Uh, do you think that's something that would be good to uh, um, occasionally post in case people want to like learn about it? I think so. I think it's really important for people to have access to, to information about what, what herbs um, may be of assistance to them. You know, a, another herb that um, I've, um, I've used on occasions is St. John's wort. You know, it, it's, it's very good for depression. And from what I've read, in Germany, the split between people who use prescription drugs for depression and those who use St. John's Ward is roughly 50-50. Hmm. So I, I will normally go for the herb rather than a, um, a pharmaceutical drug. Um, another thing that you can use for depression, this is something my Kabbalah teacher taught me back home, and it sounds kind of weird until you try it. He told me that if you inhale orange oil, you can't feel depressed. Hmm. And uh, <laughs> and there's times when I felt down, and I will carry a little bottle of um of orange essential oil with me, and if I'm feeling a bit down, I'll open up the bottle and inhale, and you feel so incredibly light and happy when you inhale it. So you know it's it's aromatherapy, but it's just a, a very simple example of, of something that does work. Aromatherapy is is also um wonderful. You can use things like like peppermint oil to um. Mm-hmm. To, to, to energize yourself, you can use things like lavender oil, inhale lavender oil to calm down and relax. And there are actually yeah. studies that have been done that show how effective these particular essential oils can be. Um, apart from that- inhaling them, you can also take a drop or two under your tongue. Um, and if you have a, a high-quality essential oil, you're pretty safe doing that. 
I want to I want to jump on St. John's wort too because it is blooming now. There's a week or two weeks for St. John's wort blooms at least in my my area. And the reason it's called St. John's wort because it blooms on St. John's Day, which is summer solstice, which is where we are. Mm-hmm. Um so I go and and one of the very interesting things about that herb is that it grows along the the highway. It's something that you see like you'll see a little yellow flower, google it and, and you can recognize the flower. Um the very first flush that you see is St. John's wort and then there are other dandelions and um, and things that come along that are yellow flowers, so don't mistake them. But uh, it it is a very uh, a very easily recognizable herb. You can go and gather it just now and gather the flowers and dry them, or you can uh, you can make your own tinctures, which is a fairly simple operation. Um, and we've done that here <laughs> here at home for a number of years for the, for depression, but also for eyesight. It's good for um, for clearing up your eyesight too. It's a it's a lovely a, a lovely thing and it's a lovely thing to know about um, and a lovely way to get in touch with what's going on in the on the earth in in the seasons which I also think is is part of bringing us into balance um, and and it's a, it's a remedy that the earth offers to us and offers to us at this time so I, I think that's that's a great call out Tony that's a, that's a wonderful herb yeah and is there a best form to take uh, St John's Wort? I always go for tinctures and extracts. Um, I'm, okay. I'm very predictable when it comes to this stuff. <laughs> and as Brandy has pointed out, not just once but several times, uh, this is theurgy that people are already doing, but they don't know that uh, it's theurgy. So uh, even though it seems like we're all over the place, we're actually uh, fulfilling the objective of uh, tonight's uh, episode by showing how uh, all of these things uh, are a part of the practice of theurgy, so people are, are doing theurgy without even knowing it. You know, it's a really good point. Um, you've kind of brought it right back to, to what I was thinking about. How do I talk to pagans about theurgy? And one of the ways to, to connect is through the things that we have, have in common, particularly in this emphasis on healing. All, all spiritual people have been called on to be healers um, throughout the ages, wherever we are in any any culture. Um, so that's that's a place that we can connect, um, and I, I think just this ancient knowledge, the the knowledge of herbs that we're talking about, that's knowledge that has been passed to us for thousands and thousands of years. It's also knowledge that we gather um, anew in each place that we come. So we have the knowledge of the the Greek herbs, and they grow here, but the knowledge of the herbs that grow on this continent comes to us from native people. So it's important to recognize that and to to acknowledge that too. Um, Absolutely, and as Brandy pointed out, um, herbs represent the connection that we have with the planet that we live on, which leads me to um, a short tangent that I wanted to go on, the dangers of GMOs, genetically Mm, modified organisms. The thing is that we evolved alongside various herbs and various plants and things. Um, Our bodies are designed to function on those particular plants and herbs but once you start taking once you start ingesting plants that have been modified in the laboratory where they'll splice it like for instance with tomatoes they will splice in genes from amphibians or fish you know to to make them disease resistant or 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 make them um, um increase their shelf life then you're ingesting things that are untested things that our ancestors didn't have and I think that tends to lessen your connection with the divine. I think 
we have a responsibility to, to stick to things which, which are as natural as possible. We don't want to be connected to things created in laboratories. We want to stick to natural stuff, which, again, is another argument for taking herbs as healing agents as opposed to taking pharmaceutical drugs. Try to stay as natural as possible. But, you know, by the same token, there may be times when you will need to take a synthetic, a, a synthetic substance. So take it while you need it, but then go back to, to the natural option. Why is it? You know, and and um, you you make a good point too that they are our connections to the gods. So there are all of the um, associations of plants with specific deities or with um, planets, which are also associated with deities or our forces. Um, and that that's a that's a good call out too. I mean, Saint John's Wort is connected with the sun and with sunlight, and sun and sunlight have a connection with sight and with um, cheerfulness and cheeriness too. So you you can uh, you know we don't want to go too far down the the road of doctrine of correspondences, which isn't necessarily helpful, but it is it is um, uh, something that I I recognize I recognize that Saint John's Wort is of the sun, and I connect spiritually to the sun through that plant. So it has both the physical effect that we can document and that is documentable by medical science, and it also has a spiritual effect. So this is a, that's a great call-out, Tony. What a, what a wonderful thing to, to talk about. I love the way you took it to another level. <laughs> I, I learned so much from you. As do I. You guys are awesome, and I always look forward to our theurgy forums. Um, Over to you, Hercules. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, so those are very good points. Uh, and solar breath has come up a, a couple of times now in connections uh, with the sun. Uh, I am very attuned to the sun uh, as well. Um, how would I incorporate uh, taking uh, St. John's wort uh, for the sun? And where are the best descriptions of uh, the solar breaths? Like where can I learn well, more about it? I wonder. I wonder if I've I I've written, hopefully I've written about it. <laughs> I talk about okay. it all the time. Um, yeah, you know I'll I'll go look and see if I've I've written anywhere. Tony remembered that I said something um, at a theurgicon. I don't write that because it comes to me from another tradition. But it was um, it, it's fascinating to me. I I belong to a Shinto shrine, and the um, the person who runs the shrine, Kuichi Barish. Um, took us out to the river uh, during a, a seminar and showed us a solar breathing technique that was literally like t uh, at least 2000 years old. And it was at the same time that, um, that the Hellenistic people were, were doing solar breathing. And I said, you know, there's, there's connections between, um, between cultures and there's, there's sort of a, um, a, a foundational um, set of understandings that, that we share that was it, it was from the same time period, so it was really fun. So what he did was to we just looked at the sun and put um, made a circle with our our um, our hands, our fingers, and and then don't look at the sun too long because that will burn your eyes, right? But look at the sun and look right. away, and look at the sun, look away, and then just take deep breaths. And when I do solar breathing, I literally go out into the sunlight, take off my glasses so that the sun can can hit my eyes, and just take three deep breaths. Um, the, the place where you find it like really played out in a very lengthy spiritual way is the Mithras Liturgy, where um, you, there is a description of solar breathing in the, the Mithras Liturgy. And Tony may be able to extract that and explain how it's used there. Tony? Um, yeah, 
yeah, there there is a reference to solar breathing in the Mithras liturgy, and as I mentioned before, the thing with the Mithras liturgy is that is the most comprehensive rite of ascension that we have, and whenever any academic tries to flesh out systems of ascension, be it from the Chaldean oracles or be it from the um, the, the Hecolot literature that, that you spoke about earlier on, they tend to reference it to, to the Mithras liturgy. Um, the problem with the Mithras liturgy is that there's not as much information there as, as we'd want. We're dealing with, this, with, a, um, with a tradition that's been lost. And I was going to share a little story with you. Um, okay. I, I had the privilege of having um, lunch with Professor Marvin Meyer. He was uh, a friend of a friend of mine. And um, so I wound up having lunch with him, and I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent, but um, he said that he tended to look at um, the Greek magical papyri the same way that academics normally do. So they will look at various spells, and they'll look at the wording, they'll compare it to wording and other spells and the like. However, he was doing a documentary in Turkey where they were trying to flesh out a... Um, um, an exorcism. So he said he told me that he had to look at that look at that particular spell. Guys, mm-hmm. he had to see it as an instructional document rather than as something that he could compare to other documents. And um, so, in this particular documentary, you had one person playing the exorcist, another person playing the woman who was possessed. Um, there, there were a number of people there, so he had to wander around um, explaining to viewers who was who and what they were doing. And towards the end of the lunch, he told me that he had various ideas as to how the Mithras liturgy should be performed. So someone who's a high-level academic and had actually thought extensively about the Mithras liturgy and before we were able to have a second lunch, he sadly passed away. So he took, oh my all, gosh. His he took all his performance ideas to his grave with him, which is really, oh no. really sad. Um, well, I've, I've I performed met, it, Tony. I've, I've I myself have performed well. it. Yeah, you, I've, we, should, I've, we should compare notes. How much time do we have? <laughs> we have actually 16 more minutes, so go go right ahead. Yeah, you go you go um, first and then I'll tell you what I did. Okay. Um, the way I see it is a it's a way of ascending to the planetary spheres. So I go through the whole Mithras liturgy and after having worked through each of the planets, um, remember that bit where you're supposed to um intone the ver- I'm trying to remember the bit. Um, but I actually get people to visualize each of the planetary spheres. So I have a particular name of power associated with each planetary mm-hmm. sphere. So the Mithras liturgy is something which is performed after having worked with the seven planetary spheres and also having worked with the Ogdode. I see the Mithras liturgy as a way of ascending through the seven planetary spheres, through the Ogdode, and winding up at the Ennead. So I basically see it as I, I get people to visualize the, um, the various things that are there, and also I intone the, the names of power. And hope for the best. Oh, that's, that's great. But it's 
not yep. something you could do on its own. You need to have done all the planetary workings prior to having worked with the Mithrax liturgy. Otherwise, um, it's not going to work. Well, um, I've done it. Uh, yeah, I, I, I hear that. And I think that that's a really wonderful thing to do with a group of people. I've done it as a public ritual, uh, as, a, as an, uh, a demonstration or exemplification of what it can represent. So I made it into kind of a theater piece. And what I did was to take, I, I took the ritual itself. I didn't really change it at all. I put a little bit of instruction at the beginning and the end so it made sense and I made it into two characters the the person who was giving the instruction the narrator and then the person who was doing the ritual itself and because it was following a particular um, it was uh, Sarah Isles Johnson thinks that it was a woman writing a it was the the narrator was writing to a woman to do the ritual um, because it begins yeah. you know I give you this instruction on my daughter I thought that was great so I, I was the narrator and a slightly younger woman was the daughter um, and so we just we we split it up like that, and we um, we we did the invocations, and I did the um, I did the the strings of vowels, which are incredibly powerful. <laughs> and then um, what we did instead of having people visualize, what we did in the middle section was um, we dropped in a piece of magical technology from another tradition. We dropped in what's called a wyong. We did um, we did a um, a little puppet show where people we dimmed the lights and we um, we projected on a on a screen the um, the stars and the the different figures that were moving so it was really fun it was really a very interesting way to do it and then at the end the um uh someone came out and was the sun and then we charged some stones and we handed them out to people and i was thinking i was thinking if i drive down to pantheacon we could we could organize to do that as a, as a ritual if people were interested in it um, but I also like your idea, Tony, of, of having having a set of um, a set of invocations to the the planets or a set of uh, meditations that you would do um, in order to prepare yourself for the work as well. And that could be that could be a drop in, or that could that could be something that you could do as a as a general ritual as well. Um, I, I've usually spread that out over a series of a few months. So I'll, I'll, You're a very in-depth I'll, guy. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I start off with, with the lunar invocation and then, then go on to, to invoking the sphere of Mercury and work my way through all seven planets and then work with the Ogdos. So um, by the time they get to the Mithras liturgy, they've experienced all the spheres. So then all of a sudden, um, the planetary invocations become, it, it's like a ladder to ascend up to the Ennead. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, oh, that's how wonderful. I've done. Yeah, but so you, I know I know you talk about it in Greco-Egyptian magic, but have you written that out as have you fleshed that out as a system and and um, put that into writing? Um, I have all the notes. I've I've actually run the workshops. So I've I've run a series of nine workshops, um, culminating in the Mithras liturgy. Um, I haven't <laughs> put that fully together yet. Um, it's one of the things that I'm that I'm slowly working on. I keep finding excuses to to put it off, but it is something that I that I really need to because it's it, it's a complete system in itself. I mean, to me, it's something yes. that parallels ascending up the tree of life. So rather than work I would totally do that with you. Sephiroth, yeah, rather 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 than um, ascending through through the ten Sephiroth, you you ascend up to a series of nine spheres. Yeah. 
Wow. Yeah, I t- I'm totally there. Um, um, the, I, I'm studying with the Shakta teacher who uses Zoom, and um, Zoom. I, I encourage you to investigate that. You could do that as a series of, um, of of workings with people from around, you know, around the country, around the world, through the technology. You could take people through that because if you're leading a meditation, we can be sitting in our houses and doing the meditation. That would be an interesting interesting thing to do. And it's a thing in general um, that we all need to start investigating as we kind of look at different income streams, you know, and ways to reach people. The technology can get there. So I encourage you to, to look at people. I'll, I'll send you an email um, and, and show you, you know, some examples of how that would work. But that seems like it would really lend itself well to, uh, if you're doing work that intense, spread over a long period of time, that would lend itself well to a, a distance learning kind of format. Absolutely. So I've, I've tended to limit myself to, um, to, to local venues, places that I can drive to, you know, within an hour or two hours at the very most. So, um, yeah, that, that would certainly enable me to, to reach a lot more people. Yeah. If you can send an email to me as well, I'd like to look into it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Zoom is the future. Yes. We should be doing these forums in Zoom. <laughs> yeah. That that is something worth looking into, and I will look into that uh, between now and the next time we speak. Uh, so, uh, uh, but yeah, that, that's a good idea. Block Talk Radio has been phenomenal. I'm glad uh, for the forum, but lately it's been very very uh, wonky, and. Uh, um, you know, with a variety of problems. So I've been uh, looking into uh, uh, people's suggestions, and I'll certainly look into Zoom as well. Mm-hmm. Well, we're, we're making a phenomenal uh, start today. Um, so we have the, the, the herbs, and we have uh, the, the planetary uh, uh, associations. I, I I love working with the planets. I've been doing it uh, for years in different ways, and uh, even my blessings on the Facebook page are like tied to the planets. You know that uh, I, I give like a daily blessing, um, and uh, uh, that has uh, allowed me to organize my life in a very profound way. Doing the daily uh, uh, whatever I happen to do for the day with uh, the planet. Now I've incorporated certain things into my daily exercise program too. So before I start lifting weights or using cables or whatever I'm doing that day, um, I've, I've tied uh, something having to do with the planets uh, into, you know, my breathing and my uh, doing different body postures and, and so forth. And uh, I'm working on coordinating that uh, better and better with the planets and the body parts that correspond with and so on. So uh, it's a process, uh, but it really does help and it really does empower you to, uh, to use these systems. That's it also helps how you win with the energies of the day. Yes. Uh, we've spoken before about uh, the, the associations uh, between the gods of different pantheons and how in antiquity uh, they practiced uh, um, finding these correspondences as quickly as possible as a means of uh, Um, establishing rapport with whatever people they were trading with or traveling uh, among. And uh, we would call that uh, here like comparative mythology or comparative religion. Um, But uh, back in uh, antiquity, it was a standard uh, practice. And one of the things I've run into uh, now is uh, uh, people uh, complaining about cultural appropriation. 
And that seems to be a new practice because antiquity was one big uh, um, example of cultural appropriation on a massive, massive scale. So how do you guys feel about <laughs> that whole issue? Oh, wow. You're going to say that was five minutes to go? <laughs> we, might, we might think about that for the next, next thing. No, and, and in antiquity, too, it was also a, a way not just of connecting but also of, uh, of suppressing. I'm thinking particularly of the Romans who came in and used their own names for the Celtic deities rather yes. than the Celtic names. So we lost a lot through it. So, so there, was a, there was a sense of like um, colonialization in, in antiquity as well as is today. Um, and I, I think, um, I, I think what I, what I do is I listen to the people themselves. So the, you know, we have, we have a, a local native tribe and I listen to them about what they want, um, how, how they want me to relate to them. And if they want me to do something, I do it. And if they don't want me to do something, I leave it alone. Um, so I, I think it, it behooves the people who are, who have more power to listen to the people that we're taking stuff from. That's, that's where I, that's my immediate, you know, response to that. That sounds great. Tony, what are your thoughts? Um, the thing that comes to my mind is you have to look at the person's intent who wants to borrow from, from another culture. If it's something that they're doing just to enrich their own life, then that's one thing. But if it's something that they're doing in order to profit from it, so for instance, someone who isn't Native American putting on Sweat lodge rituals, for instance, um, borrowing chants and the like from, um, from indigenous peoples, and they're doing it to profit, then the, the, whole, the whole game changes. They're basically sullying what should be a sacred practice that's been passed down from generation to generation. Um, I think the person's intent is, is, is very, very important. If they're doing it to either a mocker culture or to profit from it, then it's very wrong. But if it's just something that they're doing to enrich themselves spiritually, I don't really see a problem. I mean, as, as you guys have pointed out, it was something which was widely practiced in ancient times. Thank you. Okay, so we're of the same mind uh, with that uh, as well. Uh, we do have five uh, more minutes, now four. Um, how about we close the show with uh, each of you introducing how people can enter your world and learn about your work and get involved if they wish to? Brandy, you want to start? Sure. So sure. my webpage is brandywilliamsauthor.com, and I put it. Uh, I put up a, a schedule there. Uh, my the next place I'm going to be physically is Sacred Harvest Fest, which is um, August. Uh, it's the first week in August, so you can you can look it up online. It's uh, I think it starts the sixth, and it's an entire week of uh, camping festival in the in the Minnesota Northwoods, and I'll be doing five days of theurgy out there. So I'm really wow. looking forward to it. Yeah, that sounds awesome. And Tony's been there too. Um, it, it's and, an and encourage me one. to go. <laughs> oh, absolutely, it's a wonderful festival. Amazing vibe. Um, they they cater for for all ages, um, unless it's changed. They they'd have um, an area there for for people our age, and they have an area for teens. They'd have an area for for little kids. Um, they would have a time limit, but like no drumming after a certain time, so that the kids could get to sleep. 
it was all very considerate. Um, people tended to be very interested in what you had to say. Um, the, the food was excellent. Everyone's really friendly. I can't say enough good things about it, and I'm very happy for Brandy that, that she's going there, and um, I'm confident she's going to have an absolutely wonderful time when she gets there. As am I. Uh, and what she'll be teaching will provide uh, a lot of eye-opening uh, experiences uh, for people as well. Exactly. The, the people there are, are hungry for information, and um, so they tend to bring in different authors each year so that each of them can, can give um, the benefit of, of, their, of their viewpoints, um, their experience and the like. So um, they're going to love Brandy and her teachings. Um, I'm totally confident of that. Well, thanks. Oh, you're so well, sweet, and thank you for the reassurance. And, and Tony, wait, wait, wait. Tony hasn't told us how to get a hold of him. Okay, go ahead. Uh, uh, um, at the moment, the easiest way is through Facebook. I'm still having issues with my website, so I have two Facebook pages, a personal page, and also an author page. The author page just has things specific to my writing and things that are related to that writing, whereas the personal page is, well, things of interest as well, of interest to me and hopefully of interest to, to a few other people. So it's probably the easiest way to get in contact with me, Facebook. And thank you for showing me how to more effectively distribute the announcements on Facebook. I really appreciate it. That, that was there the whole time. I didn't, I didn't even know about it. So now, now I do. <laughs> Thanks you're, you're to both very of you. I had a phenomenal uh, um, experience uh, talking to you, and I hope that my listeners uh, did as well. And I'm really looking forward to our next conversation. Likewise. Thank you. Uh, um, until next time, this is all of us wishing you joyous journeys and great adventures. Olympian blessings to all who have joined us on our adventure. Now, go forth and create a better world, one filled with light and love. On behalf of the pride of Olympus and her crew, may your journey be joyous.